Hi, y'all, and welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and you are just in time. We are about to cap off this season with our third series. Just like with the Jacobite Wars and the Imgen War, this is a story that could not be crammed into one, two, or even four episodes, and it would lose a lot if I tried. This series is going to be about the Crimean War. And guys, this is what I was planning on doing from the get-go. I knew from the very moment I started planning this podcast that the Crimean War was one of the things I wanted to talk about, one of the four or five big series I planned out from the beginning. The Jacobite Wars and the Imgen War were relatively late ideas in the planning, but the Crimean War was always going to happen. Now, many of you may not have heard of this war. You've almost certainly heard of at least one major event from it, that is, the Charge of the Light Brigade. Maybe you have heard of this war, but you just know sort of that it happened and that's about it. This is a war most people have heard of, but likely just don't know a lot about. It's got famous incidents and people in it, but not a lot of people know their context. And I get it, guys. I doubt many of you going, oh my gosh, the Crimean War. I always wanted to hear about that. Well, maybe some of you. Doesn't it just sound like a dusty subject? No one's getting Tom Holland to star in any feature-length movie about the Crimean War tomorrow. But as we all know, history is not nearly as dusty as it may seem. Fear not. I intend to educate and entertain, and of course, let you know why you should care. So for this introduction, I just want to give a very basic framework of what this war was and why I'm talking about it. And I also need to get some terminology, some geography, just some housekeeping out of the way. And then I'm going to talk about a little bit, just for a little bit, about the historiography. That is what other historians have written about the Crimean War. Long story short, a whole lot, but only a few have anything new to say. Finally, I'll discuss the central themes of the Crimean War series, the point of this series, and why you should care. One final note. I am excited to announce that for the first time, a fan of the show will be providing one of the voices for this story. Shout out to Will D, who is providing the voice of Tsar Nicholas I. If you have a good working microphone and you would like to provide in the future, get in touch. Now, I make no promises, and if I get a bunch of messages, I will probably just have to do a sweepstakes of some kind. But I'm delighted to bring in fan participation whenever I can. So look out for the Tsar throughout the rest of this series. So if you don't know your Prussias from your Russias, great. I won't be long. But if you just cannot wait to go on campaign, be my guest. Episode 27, Crimea Part 1, The Sick Man of Europe, is already on the feed. You still here? Cool. Let's get going. First, when and where does this story take place? The Crimean War occurs during what we call the Victorian Age, from 1853 to 1856, with a European alliance of Britain, France, the Ottoman Empire, and Sardinia, yes, Sardinia, against the Russian Empire. So when is this exactly? This is after the American and French revolutions, after Washington, Jefferson, all of them are dead, before the World Wars and the American Civil War. Technology-wise, well, that's a big part of the story, the technology, because the Industrial Revolution is in full swing. We have steam power, and that means railroads and steamboats. We have very early electrical currents, and that means telegraphs. We have the earliest use of photography. We don't have electric lighting, telephones, cars, or any of that kind of stuff. That's a couple of decades away. But the 19th century was a very fast period of transformation worldwide, faster than ever before in human history. And that's going to be a big part of the Crimean War story. 
because the armies in this war had not changed their tactics, methods, or administrations to accommodate this new technology. They had brand shiny new hardware in some cases, but they were still mostly running old software, to pull out an analogy I made a long time ago. Now this is a time period with a lot of names you might recognize, and many of them will appear to one degree or another in this series. This series takes place during the writing careers of Charles Dickens, Victor Hugo, Walt Whitman, Herman Melville, the musical careers of Wagner and Liszt and Verdi. One of the most influential writers of the day is Charles Darwin, and during this series, a certain German philosopher named Karl Marx will pop up a few times and offer his thoughts on the war. Karl Marx was a writer for the New York Tribune throughout the conflict, and he did most of the war reporting for American newspapers on the Crimean War. Imagine that. To put this story in American context, guys, this is going to be very, very helpful at understanding this war if you don't know much about this time period. The Crimean War occurred less than a decade before the American Civil War. When this war is taking place, Abraham Lincoln, Clara Barton, Robert E. Lee, Grant, Jefferson Davis, all of them, they are all less than 10 years away from the saga that makes them famous. All the big events that leads up to this war, including the Kansas-Nebraska Act, Bleeding Kansas, and the filibuster conflicts, take place in this same time period. Most of William Walker's wars in Mexico and Nicaragua are happening at literally the same time as the Crimean War. So the USA is on the cusp of the Civil War throughout this entire story. And the Crimean War is really comparable to the Civil War in many ways. A lot of the technologies used in the American Civil War that were new to Americans were actually introduced in the Crimean War, including rifled muskets, exploding naval shells, railroads, telegraphs, and even armored ships. A lot of what America went through during the Civil War, well, Europe had already gone through that 10 years earlier in the Crimea. And in many cases, the Crimean War experience was worse for everyone involved than much of the American Civil War, which I will remind you was no cakewalk. So what is the Crimean War? Just a quick summary. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. <laughs> so here's, here's, here what it, here's what it is. The Ottoman Empire, an old Muslim empire that ruled much of Europe and the Middle East, was in decline. A decline that gave it the nickname, the Sick Man of Europe. Ottoman decline threatened to upset the European balance of power. So when Russia threatened the Ottoman Empire in 1853, other European powers felt the need to intervene. The Crimean War really began in October 1853 as a two-way war between the Ottoman Empire and Russia. But Britain and France, who felt threatened by the growth of Russian power, joined the Ottoman Empire in early 1854 to try to curb the growing power, power of the Tsar. All of this is in Part 1, The Sick Man of Europe. In 1854, the British and French decided that the Russians needed to be decisively defeated to prevent any future threats to the Ottoman Empire. To accomplish this, they decided to send a large army to the Crimean Peninsula, which juts out into the Black Sea like an arrowhead, and capture the great Russian naval base at Sevastopol. The Allies landed, defeated the Russian army at the Battle of the Alma, and laid siege to the city. During the first couple of months of the Siege of Sevastopol, the Allies had to fight off numerous Russian counterattacks, culminating in the battles of Balaclava and Inkerman, including the Charge of the Light Brigade. This is part two and part three of the series, of the podcast series. The Crimean War saw fighting all over the place, including the Caucasus, Black Sea, the Arctic Circle, and even the Pacific. But the focus of the war was always on the Crimea and the Siege of Sevastopol. 
After a long and bitter struggle, the Allies finally captured Sevastopol in September 1855 after a siege that lasted almost a year, a siege which is basically the focal point of the war and the focal point of the series. This led to a peace treaty in April 1856. The Crimean War was the first modern war, the first war to be decided and influenced by mass media, industrial power, global logistics, and the individual soldier. It also awakened everyone to the changes going on in European society and the importance of the Industrial Revolution. The world would never be the same. And that part will be covered in parts four and five of the series. So those are the events I will cover over the next five episodes. Now, the first and last episodes will be a little bit longer than my normal episodes. Consider the mega episodes. And as I do with all my series, I will have supplemental short rounds, including, at the end, a brace of loose ends I just didn't have time to fit in the bigger series. So that's what I'll be talking about. Now that that's established, we need to clear some stuff up. First, my accuracy for clarity bits. You know, sacrifice a little bit of accuracy for clarity sometimes. I will get this out front. The Crimean War was not necessarily called that at the time, or even after it ended for a while. It was called the Eastern War, or the Russian War, or there just wasn't a name for it yet. As we will see, the Crimea wasn't even a major theater of operations until 10 months into the conflict. The war is named after where most of the fighting took place, not the cause, objective, or outcome of the war. The war was not fought over the Crimea, it was fought in the Crimea. But I will still refer to it throughout as the Crimean War, just for clarity's sake. Also, some of the cities I mentioned have changed their names, and I'm using the original names for most of them. Constantinople is today called Istanbul, but it wasn't called Istanbul until 1930. Common misconception, throughout the life of the Ottoman Empire, the capital city retained its original name. So I'm going to keep referring to it as Constantinople throughout the series, even though it's Istanbul now. I will also mention several Ukrainian cities whose names might have slightly changed since 1854. Finally, there are some countries in this series I will talk about that no longer exist. The Ottoman Empire is the big one. This was the Turkish Empire, based in Constantinople, that ruled over most of southeastern Europe and the Middle East. It's often referred to colloquially in this time period just as Turkey, even though it wasn't really Turkey, it was the Ottoman Empire. But the Ottoman Empire died in World War I. So did the Austrian Empire, which was probably at the peak of its power during the Crimean War. Far from just being a small European country like Austria is today, Austrian, the Austrian Habsburg dynasty ruled over most of Italy and Central Europe. There is also Prussia, a North German kingdom based in Berlin, that would eventually unite the various German states into a Germany under its rule. The kings of Prussia are the ancestors of the emperors, future emperors of Germany. And two small countries that would dominate the early events of the Crimean War. These are the Danubian principalities, Moldavia and Wallachia. They're spelled Moldavia and Wallachia, but Moldavia and Wallachia. Together, they make up two-thirds of what would eventually become Romania. These are two small principalities that are made up of people calling themselves Romanians that are part of modern Romania. The other third of Romania, Transylvania, was still ruled by Austria, part of the Austrian Empire. These are countries that existed in 1853 that don't exist today and all of them will be in the map on my website and social media that I'm going to have for you so you can understand exactly what I'm talking about. 
Last of all, I want to talk briefly about warfare in this time period. Warfare is going to change, change a lot as a result of the Crimean War, but it's important to make sure we know what it looked like beforehand. Armies of the early 19th century consisted of three main combat arms, infantry, cavalry, and artillery. Your infantry were usually decked out in fancy uniforms and armed with a musket, or, if you're lucky, one of the new rifled muskets which will play such a big part in the fighting to come. These are, throughout the Crimean War, these are still single-shot, muzzle-loading weapons, but the newer weapons have much greater accuracy, much greater range, and can be reloaded quicker, which will play a decisive role in some of the battles. The traditional tactics for these infantry involved long lines or dense columns, with men firing volleys and delivering bayonet charges at close range. Some more advanced units might use skirmish tactics, fire and movement in small groups. But thanks to the limitations of modern firearms, a single-shot, muzzle-loading, usually short-range weapon, these were only effective to a certain degree. The mass formation was still a major part of infantry warfare. But that is about to change. The 19th century infantry unit tended to be rigid, harshly disciplined, a drill-field unit. You're, you've probably seen soldiers marching in formation in the modern day. Well, that is what these guys did in battle as well as on parade. This was One of the reasons for this was that it was the only way for officers to keep control of a large formation in combat on a chaotic battlefield. Then you have cavalry, men on horseback, occasionally using firearms, but in Europe, usually armed with edged weapons, spears, or lances or swords of one kind or another. Cavalry still relied on shock tactics to deliver a blow to enemy troops, and they were still used, and still useful in this role, in the Crimean War. This is in contrast to the American Civil War, where the cavalry charged with edged weapons almost never happened in real life. Most American Civil War cavalry tactics revolved around you'd ride to the battlefield, dismount, and fire and use a rifle or musket to fire at your enemy. But in Europe, they're still riding their cavalry over infantry with swords and lances. European cavalry was just built different. Finally, there is artillery. Big distinction to be made here between field artillery, lighter pieces that an army used in battle, and siege artillery, much bigger boys used against fortifications. Siege artillery could take days or even weeks to drag into position, mount, and prepare for use. Field artillery was ready in a few minutes, but fired a much smaller shell. The enormous size and difficulty in using siege artillery and the immense logistic requirement the siege artillery generated would play a major part in the long-term outcome of the Crimean War. But besides these three major arms, one big issue in the Crimean War was the supporting arms. If the infantry, cavalry, and artillery were the army's teeth, everything else, supply, maintenance, medical, transport, was the army's tail. And guys, the failure of the tail in almost every army is one of the biggest aspects of the Crimean War. I'm devoting most of the fourth episode to the failure of the army's tail. Very few armies had decent support services, and this is one of the major aspects of the Crimean War changed. The need for all these supporting units, especially, oh my goodness, especially medical, would become extremely apparent as the Crimean War went on. So that's your little primer on the state of military affairs just before the Crimean War. Hope all that helps. But now let's dive briefly into the historiography. Real quick, I'm going to be quick. So I read a lot of books for this series, a lot, in articles but mostly books. And in reviewing all the literature I've read about the Crimean War, I have two big takeaways. 
First, there is no shortage. There is no shortage of books written about the Crimean War. There are lots and lots and lots of English language texts on the generals, the battles, etc. I have a few favorites and some ones I recommend, which I will point out in my source post on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com. But the second big takeaway is that many of these books have very little new to say, because there is one overriding narrative to the bulk of the English language literature. It, not coincidentally, focuses on the English. The British perspective of the war, mainly a couple of battles on the Crimea, and not much else. If you read a lot of these books, especially older works by G.A.H. Blake and Philip Warner and Alan Palmer, the version of the story you will get is Britain versus Russia, but mostly Britain, and maybe Russia's like a faceless horde that brave British soldiers are fighting. Some other countries were involved, but they're not really important. This is, of course, absolutely incorrect. The French were probably the dominant partner in the anti-Russian alliance, and the Ottomans were, after all, the whole reason this war happened. There's, but there's a reason for this. You know, one, I'm reading in English, and two, the British and the Russians took the most interest historically in the war. The French, the Italians, the Ottomans, for whatever reason, it it's not, doesn't loom as large in their memory. They just haven't produced a lot of work on this conflict, even their historians. To them, it's either not that important or it's overshadowed by other more interesting events. There's very few French histories of the Crimean War. They they focus mainly on later wars or earlier wars. But it's hard to ignore the British domination and honestly British chauvinism of my sources. That's why I tried to break away from it as much as possible. I sought out what few books there were on other perspectives. For the Russians, I consulted Orlando Figes, Albert Seaton, and John Curtis. For the Ottomans, Kandan Badem. And for the French, Brisson Gouch. So one of my main goals in this series is to keep it from being a British story and to make sure that the French, the Ottomans, and the Russians all get their stories told. This is much harder for the Ottomans. I have almost no viewpoint, even quotes, for the Ottoman side, which is why it's going to be very light on Ottoman quotes throughout this series. So let's wrap this summary up by talking about the themes. What is the point of doing a series on the Crimean War? One of the big things I want to drive home in this series is how closely military history is connected with other kinds of history. There will be lots of background and setup, especially in the first episode, to explain why the Crimean War and the armies that fought it were a product of their age, their economies, their societies and histories. One of the most dominant forces in the Crimean War army was class, the nobility, the aristocracy, the guys with fancy titles, versus the middle class, versus the working class, versus the peasants. And we will see this class system change and evolve in Britain, and especially in Russia, largely as a result of the Crimean War. The story of the Crimean War is part of the larger story of Europe's transformation in the 19th century. Because Europe in the 19th century was rocked by revolution, protest, industrialization, and unrest, the lower classes were asserting themselves for the first time, building on the forces unleashed by the French Revolution and the new economic realities of the Industrial Revolution. The idea that the worker, the peasant, or even, God forbid, the woman, was just as much of a person as the lord or gentleman or king? Well, that was radical. In this change in attitudes about who mattered, who was important, who was the protagonist of history, well, that affected warfare as well. As the people became more important in politics, the rank and file became more important in warfare. 
modern ideas, modern technology, and public attention forced armies to change. And in return, they changed the societies that had changed them. One Europe went into the Crimea, another Europe came out. For a few big reasons. The Crimean War shattered a fragile balance of power that had existed since the downfall of Napoleon, one of Europe's longest periods of relative peace. The fallout of the Crimean War would result in a massive European shakeup that set it on the path to the First World War. But the Crimea was also important for much less specific reasons. I'm going to make the case in this series that it was the first industrial war, the first mass media war, and the first modern war. Industrial because it was the first war where mass production and steam power played a decisive role in the outcome. Mass media because the new technologies of the telegraph and photography brought war closer to the public than ever before, and the forces of public opinion shaped the course of the conflict to an unprecedented degree. And modern because the new technologies, societal changes, and new battlefield realities created the first conflict where the small unit leader, the sergeant, even the private, became a figure of both military importance and public interest. Economics and technology changed the face of warfare. From the start to the finish of the Crimean War, we see conflict go from looking more like Waterloo to looking more like Verdun, from looking like Bunker Hill to looking like the Somme. From looking like it did in, you know, the American Revolution with long lines of infantry firing each other in volleys, to looking like trench warfare on the Western Front. We see the birth of modern warfare. One final thing. This series will have six protagonists. I will introduce them as time goes on. Four of them will be introduced, one each, in episodes two through five. I skipped the number one because that's more of a diplomatic political narrative with no real viewpoint pieces. The others will be introduced in two supplemental short rounds, many biographies of two of the more fascinating people to come out of the Crimean War. One you have probably heard of, another you probably haven't. But six protagonists, three men, three women, two British, two Russian, one French, one Jamaican. Yes, Jamaican. All of them will unite at the end of our series. They'll be present on the same battlefield in the last episode, and we will see how they all meant something, how they represent the dawning of a new age for Europe, the world, and humanity. Guys, that about wraps up my introduction. Hope you guys are ready to deploy to history's first modern war, and get ready, because it's not going to be pretty. Oh, by the way, it's your turn on sentry duty. Put on your balaclava, grab your rifle, and if I were you, I'd stay out of the wind. It's pretty cold up here. The fire is waiting when your shift is over. Join me for the next five weeks on the cold, barren ridges of the Crimea.